This podcast is sponsored by the asset manager you're about to hear from. Nothing that you hear on the podcast is a recommendation to invest, and you should be aware that the value of investments can go up or down. Hello and welcome to Ideas for Your Portfolio, a podcast series that speaks to fund managers who run important funds here in the UK to understand how they go about investing and to get their views on the endless soap opera that is the stock market. I'm Marcus De Silva. This week we have back onto the pod the CEO and CIO of Asset Value Investors and fund manager of AVI Global Trust, Joe Bauenfreund to speak to him about his strategic investment approach and to hear where the world is with value investing in general. Joe, a very warm welcome to you. Hey there, thanks for having me back. So let's start from the top. Who are Asset Value Investors? Asset Value Investors is an independent firm of investment managers. We are based in London. Uh, we're an investment management boutique and we are majority owned by the people who work here. Okay, so you've got value investing, obviously, in the names. Clearly, this strategic approach is an integral part of the firm's DNA. Can you explain what we mean by value investing and why investors should be interested in this approach? Yeah, typically, when people refer to value investing, what they mean is um, the approach to investing that seeks to buy companies that are trading cheaply relative to what they believe their value to be. And arguably, you could say that all kinds of investing is really value investing because if you're buying a share, you think it's cheap. But value investors tend to focus on um, a set of metrics that help define whether a company may be cheap or not. So things like uh, the price to earnings multiple, value investors would like to pay a low PE multiple typically, or um, a price to book value Value investors are looking to buy companies when they're trading at a low price to book um, or a dividend yield. Value investors like to buy companies that have high dividend yields. So those are some of the, the metrics that value investors uh, use. But as is, as is sort of common um, when one looks in the investment world, everybody has different, different approaches and, and value investing means different things to different people. For us at Asset Value Investors, what defines whether a company is cheap is often whether the company is trading at a discount to what we believe its net asset value to be. Okay, well, let's get on to the trust. It's a closed-ended fund. It's an investment trust with over a billion pound in assets. So let's start just with the investment trust structure. Can you explain how this is unique and, and also why they're great for private investors? Yeah, you're right. Um, the investment trust um, structure is is a good one for investors. So when we talk about investment trusts, we generally referring to a closed end fund structure. And that is in contrast to an open ended fund structure. And the key difference really is, is that when an investor wants to invest in into an investment trust or a closed end fund structure, they are buying an existing share from another investor. And when they want to sell, they're selling that share to another investor. No shares are being created when one buys shares in investment trust. And that means that no, no money is being taken away or given to the fund manager. And that is important because in an open-ended fund, 
when there's panic, for example, and there's a rush for the exit, the manager needs to give cash back to his investors. And therefore, they're forced, they can be forced to sell the shares that they own in other companies at precisely the, the worst possible time when share prices are weak and low. In contrast, in a closed-end fund structure, um, because we're not giving money back or we're not taking any new money and we're buying existing shares, we can take a much more long-term patient approach and we don't have to be forced sellers at just the wrong time. And uh, that is really to the advantage of, of investors, to advantage particular to long-term investors. Okay, let's get on to the objective of the trust. Can you, can you describe this and also describe who the trust is for? Yeah, it's, it's very simple. The objective of the trust is to um, seek capital growth by investing in a portfolio of, of equities around the world that we believe to be trading at discounts to their net asset value. So good quality companies trading at anomalous prices that we think are going to appreciate over time and give our investors capital growth. As to which type of investors, it's really open to any type of investors, ranging from the smallest private investor who wants to buy a few shares. Um, each of our shares trades at, a roughly, at roughly 10 pounds. So you could buy as little as one share in our company, that's fine. And it's also suitable for large institutional investors who are looking for a differentiated approach to investing in global equities. Okay, well, you've got these sort of three areas in which you go hunting for value, these three sectors. Do you want to walk us through what, where these are, what these are? As I said um, at, at the start, we're really looking for companies trading at discounts to net asset value. And although there's no precise definition of companies that fall within that, that definition, over time, there have been a number of broad areas within the stock markets that we've tended to focus on. And as you rightly point out, there are three broad areas currently uh, that make up the bulk of our portfolio. The first is family-controlled holding companies. And these are listed entities. They're more common in Europe and in Asia uh, than they are in the UK and the US, although they do exist to an extent in, in other markets. They are listed companies where families, often families that are um, into fifth, sixth, seventh generation of wealth um, are, the, are the dominant shareholders, if not the controlling shareholders or majority shareholders. And they tend to um, be listed companies that own portfolios of other investments or other assets. And they, they can be listed, they can be unlisted, they can own minority stakes, they can own controlling stakes themselves. But they are within a kind of holding company structure. So they're, they're akin to investment companies, they're akin to closed-end funds, investment trusts, but they tend to be a lot more concentrated and you, tend, and you have a dominant shareholder in them. The second area um, that we focus on is other investment trusts. So there are several hundred investment trusts listed on the London Stock Exchange. Um, we look at all of those and we're looking again for opportunities to buy into uh, trust that own assets that we think are undervalued, that we think are going to appreciate in value, where they're trading on an unjustifiably wide discount. The third area that we're currently focused on is, is Japan. And within, within the Japanese market, we think there's an opportunity amongst predominantly small cap companies, operating businesses that are profitable, that have accumulated 
significant amounts of surplus net cash on their balance sheets and are trading at very, very low uh, multiples to their earnings. And that situation has arisen because the market doesn't apply a value to the, to the cash. And we're adopting um, a bit of an activist approach there in Japan to try and work with the management of these companies to um, be more efficient in terms of capital allocation and to focus to a greater extent on boosting shareholder returns and getting the share prices up. Well, I was actually going to ask you about shareholder activism. So this is this is something that's important to you. Can you just go into a little bit more detail about, you know, what this involves and why it's important? Well, you're right to say that that shareholder activism is important to us. And in the three areas that we we're focused on currently, they tend to have um, slight, slightly different um, opportunities and approaches when it comes to shareholder activism. So when we think about a family controlled holding company, for example, by definition, we won't be in control and it will be the family that is in control. And so we can't really exert any influence on, on the decision-making process there. We can engage with them, we can make suggestions and have a dialogue, but we're not ultimately going to be able to directly influence uh, the outcome. So what we're looking for there is an alignment of interest between us minority shareholders and the controlling shareholder. And we're looking generally for the controlling shareholder to be proactive in the way that they manage their portfolio of assets, to have delivered returns, not only for themselves, their family, but also for minority shareholders in a non-abusive way. And um, we're looking for them to be active owners of the businesses that they own to the extent that if things aren't working, they roll up their sleeves and they try and solve the problem and try and add value rather than passively sit idly and watch the value of their assets go up and down. So in that sense, it's active ownership rather than, than activism. In contrast, when we invest in closed-end funds in other investment trusts, very often we're looking to be the largest shareholder on the register. And by, by being the largest shareholder, what we're trying to do is position ourselves so that we are able to um, have more of an impact on, on the outcome that we're seeking. So if we're invested in an investment trust that is trading on a wide discount and um, we think that the board should focus on opportunities or on measures to try and resolve that wide discount, we are in a position of influence to try and achieve that, that outcome. And depending upon the situation, we'll either engage privately, constructively with the board of directors away from public scrutiny, but in some cases, if we're not getting anywhere, we will um, get involved more in, in public battles um, and we will submit resolutions to AGMs, call for EGMs and ask for some drastic measures in some cases to unlock value for shareholders. Well, in, in Japan, it's kind of a hybrid approach. Um, we want to be an activist, but because Japan is a society that's so traditional, culturally entrenched in the way that they've been doing things, it doesn't really work for foreigners to come in and demand that companies do things in the way that we're used to doing things in, in our part of the world. One has to be much more sympathetic to their culture and the way of doing business. And so therefore, um, constructive activism behind the scenes in a non-embarrassing way tends to work better. But at the same time, on occasion, it does serve our cause to, to, to go public, to put pressure on companies and to send a message that 
if we're not getting anywhere with management, we will resort to public action and, and Japanese companies tend not to like that. So it can be quite effective. I was going to ask if um, environmental social governance factors have been one of these areas of your of your activism when you've been engaging with, with companies. Well, increasingly, ESG is um, an area of focus when it comes to in, engaging with companies. Historically, it's tended to be more the governance side of things that have been the core uh, area of focus for us. So we're keen to ensure that companies are run in the interests of all shareholders, not just large shareholders. So that's very true for family controlled holding companies and, and closed in funds too. In the case of, of Japan, um, companies have been run in the interests of a, a broader group of stakeholders than just us as shareholders. And, and that's changing in Japan. So we've been keen to encourage more and more independent directors to go on boards of, of Japanese companies. So the G part has been really at the heart of what we've been doing over the years. But increasingly now we are focusing on the E and the S as well. Where are you finding the best bargains at the moment out of these three areas? Well, the interesting thing is that we're finding um, opportunities really across the board. Um, And that's interesting because obviously markets are at elevated levels and they've had a good run and we've had a good run over the past few years. But despite that, whilst there, there are some companies within each of those three broad areas that are expensive, that we've been selling, that are trading at premium to where we think their value is, there are still things that have been left behind. And that's true for European companies, Asian companies, Japanese companies, and for investment trusts as well. So I think the the portfolio, um, as I say, whilst we've been taking profits and and recycling some of that cash into into other, other names, the, the broad shape of the portfolio is currently remaining consistent with where it's been over the last few years, and that is broadly equally split between those three areas. What are your thoughts on where we are with the current economic recovery as we emerge from COVID, and also what you think will happen as markets are weaned off stimulus, as we know will happen fairly soon? Well, you know, as, as we can see, markets are grappling with this, and, it, and it's, it's, it's a difficult um, situation. Clearly, the the stimulus that we've had, particularly the monetary stimulus that we've now had for years, has been a factor in driving up parts of the market. And in particular, there are areas of the market that do look um, excessively priced, exuberantly priced, perhaps one could argue. And um, potentially, if we continue to see um, current sort of economic trajectory continue and we see interest rates having to be increased, that could have a damaging effect on on parts of the market. So typically, you know, the very high growth um, end of the market, companies that are being priced for perfection, companies that haven't yet delivered any profits and profits maybe years out, that part of the market does look a little bit excessive to us. So that could be tricky. Well, so so does this then um, potentially this could be good for for value investing then? Yeah, you know, I think in, in a low interest rate environment, um, investors are seeking in a low interest rate environment and a low growth environment, and which is what we've had in a number, number of years prior to COVID. Um, investors are drawn to growth, more growthy companies because there just isn't any growth. And so therefore, that, that's where they want to invest their money. And at the same time, low interest rates mean that the price you can afford to pay for that high growth in the future is that much higher. The corollary of that, and that we've seen in the last year or so is that 
when one does start to see economic growth pick up, then investors become focused on so-called value names. So names that look cheap and that could, could do well in, in that kind of environment. So you know where we are at the moment is when the news of the vaccine came out, obviously investors moved money towards more value, more economically sensitive names, and that part of the market did do well. More, more recently, um, that tension that we've spoken about, that uncertainty about the future direction of economic growth, of interest rates, of inflation, has been uh, the prevailing concern for investors. And you know, we see that tension being played out in the market day to day. Yeah, well, I sort of wanted to expand on on that, if it's sort of to finish with, actually. I mean, we've seen that that value investing, particularly over the past decade, um, ha- has sort of struggled a little bit against some other styles, and, and you sort of mentioned growth there. Um, and but of course, yes, you, uh, you know, as you mentioned, since we saw these vaccine developments, it's it's been a fairly good market for value. So I'm just just wondering, really sort of further out, if we sort of get the crystal ball, we're wondering, you know, just just how you think value is going to perform over sort of years and beyond from this point? Yeah, well, you know, I would say that we we've had a unique or a specific set of economic circumstances since the financial crisis. And that's been fueled by all the QE and the stimulus that we've had. And that's led to an outcome in in the stock market that's favored growth over value. I would strongly argue that um, value investing is not dead. And in particular, our approach to, to value investing, where we're seeking quality companies, we're seeking companies that we think can continue to deliver Um, growth in in profits over the years, but are just being undervalued by markets for one reason or another. And and typically amongst our companies, they're being penalized for being um, perhaps less liquid than some parts of the market, for having less research, for being more complex in terms of the, the portfolio of assets that they own or the ownership structure. And all of those reasons give rise to to discounts, which we think present great opportunities. And whilst the, that approach or that style of investing has been out of favour. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see it come back into favour in coming years. Well, on that, a big thanks to Joe for joining me on the podcast. And for our listeners, if you'd like more information on AVI Global Trust PLC, AVI Japan Opportunity Trust PLC, or of course, AVI in general, then please visit their website at assetvalueinvestors.com. Also, terms in the podcast, such as price to earnings or price to book value, are referring to accounting ratios that fund managers use to assess the financials of an investment. To learn more about investing in general, please go to the Steps to Investing website at stepstoinvesting.com. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.